This is E Boogie, the artist formerly known as Eric. You're now listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Yo, what is up, guys? We are back with another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. I'm Anushan, and today we got a four-man pop for you guys. With me, I got our sad Knicks fan, AC. Yes, I am the sad Knicks fan, but today I'm joined by my fellow brothers in misery as the Sixers and the Jazz have been knocked out too, so... I'm not feeling so bad anymore. Yeah, so AC jumped the gun a little bit there, but we do, in fact, have our jazz fan as well. We have Ubi on the podcast. <sighs> it's a sad day, guys, but what's up, everyone? <laughs> and, of course, we also have our regular host, but this time he's a bit more sadder than usual. We got Asli with us. Howdy how. So, today's podcast, guys, it's going to be on the emotional side. As you guys know, we have our two heartbroken fans, and their teams have been eliminated from the playoffs. Us be Sixers and Ubby's Jazz. So, of course, we need to talk about these two teams, what went wrong, and just go really in-depth with the series. But we also need to talk about a team that actually rallied and didn't fall victim to a collapse, and that's the Milwaukee Bucks, who overcame a huge hurdle when playing the Brooklyn Nets, pushing through to win an overtime game seven, which was something that, to be honest, a lot of us were not expecting. But of course, let's start with Uswe. First off, how you feeling, man? Oh man, that that was brutal. You know, over the past couple of years, I've experienced playoff failure, and, and it seems that the second round is as far as the Sixers can go. Almost like we're the new Clippers. But to lose like that, I mean, we're the number one seed and we go up against this young team that isn't that great on defense. And to lose like that, I was at game five when we blew a 26 point lead and I just, I couldn't believe it. Then to be honest with you, going into game six, I thought, wow, we are massive underdogs in this. But somehow by the skin of our teeth, we got out of game six. So then I thought, you know what? All right. This is why we fought all year to get the number one seed. So going back to Philly, game seven, crowds wild, pressures building, especially for those young bloods from Atlanta. And lo and behold, it's the same story as every single year. You know, like when I was watching the game, I was just thinking, man, I wonder what Usway's thinking right now. Like he must be going absolutely insane because it, it just felt that the Sixers sort of had the the Hawks on the edge of the rope kind of going the whole game and they just couldn't seem to get over that hump they couldn't kind of break away and score a few more extra points and defend their leads because we know the Sixers to be a very good defensive team and I always thought to myself that if they're able to get a little bit of a cushion they're usually able to hold their leads outside of that horrendous you know throwaway that you guys had where you completely collapsed from that 26 point lead other than that though i was like man the sixers just need to string together a couple more points and they'll be fine but unfortunately you know trey young trey young he was not having a great game but still getting everyone involved i mean red velvet kevin herter out of nowhere just having a monster game gallinari coming up big in game seven as well like i thought that 
I mean, kudos to the Hawks for sure, right? Like they they did a lot. They really pushed you guys to the edge. And, you know, there are so many things I think that went wrong for the Sixers at the end of game seven. And of course, we'll get all into that today. I mean, if I had told you that in a game seven on the road, Kevin Herter would outplay everyone in the Sixers minus Joel Embiid, y'all thought I was crazy. But the reality is that's exactly what happened. I mean, there's a lot of guys who have things to answer for, Doc Rivers, Tobias Harris, but us, we, we got to start with Ben Simmons. What the hell happened to your boy? As you all know, Ben Simmons has long been one of my favorite Sixers. And after seeing Ben Simmons pass up a wide open dunk, more than anything, I- I'm just sad for him because this is a guy that Sixers fans, we call Ben Jammin. You know, like he is a dunker. If there's one thing Ben Simmons can do well on offense, other than, of course, pass, he can dunk. To see him pass up a point-blank dunk, I mean, that just shows you, like, the problems he has goes really far. And it's sad to see because this is a guy who... Coming into the league, it almost seemed like he has limitless potential and to almost watch everything just go away from him. I mean, after this, who who's going to want to trade for him? You know, like, it was terrible. I mean, th- think about it like this. It's bad enough that he doesn't shoot. But then to be someone who won't even attempt a layup or anything, he has that much less gravity because, I mean, why why would anyone on his team even pass to him? Because they'll just hack him. It's, it's terrible. I think that's a fantastic point, Oswee, in that, He is almost like he had limitations several years ago as a player in the playoffs, right? Like he, his inability to shoot meant that teams kind of peeled away from him. So he had negative gravity, but now on top of that, they're also not worried about him near the hoop because they think, you know, if he gets the ball, he's going to play hot potato with it. I mean, this guy attempted just three shots in all the fourth quarters in a seven game series. That's absolutely pathetic. I'm not going to lie to you guys. Yeah, that's something. All right. I mean, he's basically afraid at this point to shoot. And teams now know that not only do we have to not worry about taking a jump shot, we have to worry about taking any shots. And if he does catch the ball, we can also hack him because he had the single worst free throw percentage in one postseason in playoff history. So think about all the guys we think of as bad free throw shooters, right? The Ben Wallaces, the DeAndre Jordans, the Shaqs. Ben Simmons is worse than all of them. So he is a complete negative on offense now. And it's it's to the point that every time he's out there, there's a serious cost to his team in terms of overall offensive production. Actually, there's a ceiling to how good the Six can even be on offense, no matter how well everyone else is playing, because this one guy can't shoot and now he won't shoot. You know, this reminds me of... <laughs> You guys might remember this. The Sacramento Kings GM Vivek Ranadiv once said in the past, proposed the idea of playing something like four on five. Cherry so, picking, basically. Yeah, basically <laughs> doing some absurd stuff like that. And that's what this sort of reminds me of. It's almost like you guys are forced to play a 4v5 on offense. And yes, while Ben Simmons is a good playmaker, I feel that a lot of his capabilities of playmaking come from the fast break and that is something that doesn't happen that often in playoff basketball it's more like a rarity that you're able to get easy fast break points right so to me having a guy that's this much of a liability on offense because like ac alluded to in the past he was a guy who you could reliably count on to finish around the rim 
But now he's sort of regressed and he's a guy who's scared to play on offense. So if you have a guy like that, who's just not ready for the big moment, I just don't see you going anywhere at all. And to add to that, Anu, when teams are leaving him open, the guy who is hurt the most by that is Joel Embiid, who now has that much more of a burden. This was always my issue with the Joel Embiid-Ben Simmons pairing, because Joel Embiid at his best is near the hoop, and Ben Simmons is only useful near the hoop, except now he's not even useful there. I just don't see how this partnership is going to work long term. Ben Simmons is such an enigma, right? Because he does so many things well on the court. Also, you mentioned his passing. He's also an all-world defender. This guy held Trey Young to 5 for 23 performance in a game 7. So he did his job on that end, but his weakness is so glaring that it's a problem. And I think a good way to look at this is like this, right? Guys, do y'all think that Devin Booker is a good basketball player? Yeah, by any stretch of the imagination, of course. Okay, but what if he had to play center for your team? Would he be a good basketball player? Probably not. Yeah, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> exactly. So his skill set, whatever he's doing on the court here, is just not what you need from a point guard. It doesn't matter how well he does all these other random things. At this position, there's certain baseline of performance that you need that he does not bring to the table. And as long as that's the case, I just don't see this team going past the second round, to be honest. I mean, yeah, this is the same story every single year, right? Like, we have either a Joel Embiid when he's somewhat healthy, playing well, and then you have Jimmy Butler playing well, but then who else is helping around? Like, Ben Simmons didn't give you anything back then. Tobias Harris didn't give you anything back then. And like you mentioned, AC, Ben Simmons did contribute well on the defensive side. However, unlike a lot of people, while Ben Simmons does bear blame in this, I don't, after really thinking about this, I, I don't like Glenn Rivers calling him out on that. And I don't like Joel Embiid calling him out on that because what this guy is suffering from is like very serious. He's not even able to do his his game, right? Like you look at a Rudy Gobert who has so many limitations on offense. At the same time, he knows what his game is. He doesn't try to be anything else. And if it works, it works. Right. Ben Simmons is not even trying to do that. And that's the issue. But I, I also think that while Ben Simmons does bear a lot of blame for us losing, I think it's bigger than that. You have to also look at Tobias Harris. And of course, you have to look at Glenn Rivers or Seth Curry. And yes, even Joel Embiid, who I must say, you know, there's not much more you can ask for Joel Embiid. The only thing I could say is he had eight turnovers in game seven and eight turnovers in game six. That being said, he has no space. So I forgive him for that. So also, Tobias Harris, you mentioned him. He was a total no-show for the second postseason in a row. I expect a lot more from him after the great season that he had under Doc Rivers. What the hell happened to him in the playoffs? Yeah, I'm not sure. In, in this series, he shot 36.4 from beyond the arc, which is not that great for the guy who's supposed to be our number two guy, right? In game five, Tobias Harris had four points, 18.2 from the field, zero from beyond the arc. And the combination of him and Ben had one point in the second half. And that one point was the statistically unlikely free throw made by Ben Simmons. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, pretty embarrassing when the worst free throw shooter in the history of the playoffs is the only guy scoring a yeah. point between the two of them. Yeah. Now, in Game 7, Tobias had 24 points on 33% from the field and 286 
from beyond the arc. But the biggest issue I had with Tobias Harris was if you look at how Danilo Gallinari would always find the weakest defender and would attack them or find that mismatch and attack them, whether it be George Hill or Seth Curry, why couldn't Tobias Harris do that on Trey Young? Or Lou Williams. These aren't guys who are great defenders by any stretch of the imagination. And Tobias Harris is an incredibly talented scorer. Also, I, I love that point. Trey Young is one of the worst defense players in the NBA. And Lou Williams is right up there with them in, in terms of the bottom of all these rankings. They got away with playing both those guys together, which should never have been able to happen. And the reason for that is because there's nobody on the Sixers punish that they, there wasn't anyone that could just take them into the post and score reliably or you know take them off the dribble obviously joel could take it you know into the post but by the time that would happen there was a switch there'd be a double or something but you need one of your guards your wings to, to attack them the way that like you said gallo you know or even kevin herter attacked seth curry quite a bit in, in the latter part of this series you got to target those weak defenders the inability of the Sixers to do that is a huge indictment on tobias harris for sure. Now, I mentioned Danilo Gallinari. He was shooting 47.1% from mid-range. So who's he shooting over? He's shooting over our weakest guys. Tobias Harris, why couldn't you do similar? So that's why I also blame Glenn, because I think that's a, just a schematic thing. That's something that, as the coach, he should say, hey, Tobias, you can get a mismatch. Just get a pick and roll, get Trey on you, get Lou on you, and just go at them. There is an aspect of coach motivating people to feel like they can do it and then go out and do it. Another issue that I had with Glenn was that he never ran a Seth Curry Tobias Harris pick and roll, which when Joel Embiid went down in the Washington series, that Tobias Harris Seth Curry pick and roll was deadly. He didn't employ it at all. Not once, from what I recall. Not in any of these closeout games, at least. He did it with Embiid and Curry, but you also realize you have a talented wing. You, you don't want to maybe try that. And even still, sometimes he would play these bonehead lineups of Simmons and Dwight and Matisse or Simmons and Matisse with Joel. Honestly, when the Hawks are hacking Ben over and over again, at some point you had to kind of just say, you know what, maybe I'll replace Ben with Matisse because at least... Well, I can't even say he's much better a free throw shooter because he also shot 33% from the free throw line. But then again, he... <laughs> it's, your team is just... It cracks me up. To be fair, he only attempted three. But still, it's not like he's a reliable shooter either. I remember in game six, I don't understand why... But toward the end of the game, in the closing lineup, you have Tyrese Maxey getting the inbound ball when they're trying to foul. And you're making this rookie who shot 64% from the line as your guy to shoot these game-sealing free throws. Let me ask you, Glenn, why aren't you drawing up plays for your son-in-law, Seth Curry, who is an incredible free throw shooter? Though in this series, he shot 66 from the line. But typically, he's an incredible free throw shooter. I, I don't get it. Like, why wouldn't you draw up a play to give him the ball instead of a rookie? Yeah, and I th I think that if one thing you can describe the Sixers with is inconsistency. There's just, like, nothing really makes sense except the things that don't make sense for them. Like, they want to run these ridiculous lineups of, like, Ben Simmons, Dwight Howard, Matisse Thibel all sharing the court at the same time. And I feel like, like you said, you mentioned a really good point about the, the Seth Curry and Tobias Harris pick and roll. It's like they're not employing lineups that can really utilize Tobias Harris as a primary option and Seth Curry as a secondary option. Like, if you want to employ a lineup like that, then you can 
pull Embiid out for a little bit and let them run the offense. You can find lineups where Ben Simmons can be somewhat effective, right? There are things that Glenn Rivers does that, well, I'm calling him Glenn Rivers myself because I'm so used to (laughs) Asui calling him that now. But it's true, like, he doesn't really deserve the mantle duck. I think Asui's right. Like, Glenn is a, such a such a strange coach to me because of the decisions he makes. And even in Game 7, when Shake Milton was not having a good series whatsoever, he inserts him in very critical minutes for the final quarter. And when I was watching that, I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Yes, I understand that Tyrese Maxey hasn't really performed well in this game so far, but it's like, why are you putting in Shake Milton, who hasn't had any good runs in this series, and now he's soaking up critical minutes? I mean, sure, he did make a pretty decently big play near the end of the game, but it's like, for the most part, those minutes can be pulled to someone else or into a lineup that makes some sort of sense. So I don't know. The Sixers as a whole are just so inconsistent, and it gets under my skin. Well, if anything is for sure, being a Sixers fan trains you to almost normalize this type of heartbreaking loss. So that makes me want to ask us, because as you know, Sixers fans and Philadelphia fans in general have been known to be sort of fair weather fans, you know, whether it's fair to call them that or not. But they had a very negative reaction towards Ben Simmons at the end of the game and the Sixers as a whole. I mean, there was a fan who threw some sort of soda or some sort of drink onto the court and he subsequently got banned or whatever the case may be. But I mean, the Sixers fans are very passionate, as you know, and, you know, their reactions speak volumes. So I I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on all that. You know, I'm glad you asked that, Anu, because I have heard the Fairweather fan association with Sixers fans. Tell me. Is a fan base that willingly goes along with tanking for multiple years and still supporting that team, is that fair weather to you? Is a fan base that puts up with having to wait two years for a guy who basically acts like a clown and is never healthy until finally this year he gets his (laughs) shit together. Is that being a fair weather fan? Is watching Markel Fultz forget how to shoot and then encouraging him embracing him you know like trying to support him as much as we could is that a fair weather fan or how about ben simmons game five i'm at the arena and everyone's like shouting you got this ben we believe in you and you know giving him a pass for so many years is that a fair weather fan let me tell you why sixers fans boo I i don't agree with throwing things at the players because i don't want them to get injured they played bad That is punishment enough. The media will destroy them for it. The fans will destroy them for it on the message boards everywhere, social media. Let that be their punishment. Let the pain of loss be their punishment, not throwing something on the court. But booing, I'm okay with. Because it's not that we're saying, oh, we hate you. Because come October, we're going to be cheering like crazy. We boo because we know you can be better than this. We boo because we believed in Ben Simmons for so long that he would finally take it seriously and and improve in his game. And we believed and we supported and we defended him. And year how many, he still hasn't improved his game at all. That's why we boo. We boo when we're the number one seed and our coach is getting outcoached by the interim coach of a number four seed of a bunch of kids. You know, this was our five year. Five seed. It's not even a four seed. They, they're five seeds, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they knocked out the four seed. That's right. That's right. In, in Adding insult to injury, right? So, yeah, I mean, look, that that's why we boo. It's because we know they could be better. It's because we believe in them and we continuously, year in and year out, always say we believe in our team. We trust in you guys. You know, we trust the process. We trust in Maury. We're there. 
Asmi, let me ask you a, a question. When I look at the Sixers roster, to me, a lot of their problems come from having very one-way players, right? So they have guys, at least three major rotation players in Ben Simmons, Matisse Thybul, and Dwight Howard, who are all defense and have absolutely no shot to speak of whatsoever. And then you have Seth Curry, who's like the polar opposite sort of player. He's all offense and a sieve on defense. I do think Danny Green's absence should be noted here because I think if you had Danny Green, for sure, he kind of he kind of fills both roles. He can at least, in theory, you know, provide spacing absolutely on offense, and, and he doesn't make mistakes on defense. And, and the still, leadership and the leadership on the court too. Right, you know, he's just a guy who doesn't beat himself, which is exactly what you want from in a, in a playoff series. But overall, I look at this roster as having major flaws, and I think personally, as I, as I mentioned before, that. I just don't think that having Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons as your top two players is a tenable solution to win in playoff basketball. So my question for you also is, the Sixers are in a bit of a tough position, though, to like to do a rebuild. Because if, if, you, if you wanted to trade Ben Simmons, the time to have done it was probably earlier. Or maybe maybe the hope was that he would have another good playoffs after a pretty good regular season overall. Instead, now his value couldn't be any worse. And the sorts of teams that might want to take a flyer on a Ben Simmons because he's young, will probably be the kind of teams that are in a full rebuild that are going to throw picks at you. But you guys are in a win-now situation. Like, you don't care. Like, if Oklahoma City, for example, throws a boatload of picks at the Sixers, I can't imagine that the Sixers fans, having gone through the process, have the have an appetite for a full rebuild now. And Joel Embiid is smacked out of the middle of his prime, and he's not the kind of player who I think will last a long time. So... Is there some sort of an idea now, you know, at least as a Sixers fan, do you want to move on from Ben Simmons? And what, what, would you, what would you be looking for in that situation? Ben Simmons' trade value decreased this year because of the complete lack of shooting even two feet from the hoop and from his terrible free throws. But a lot of that is attested to some type of like real mental health issue. And I think some of it is salvageable. And maybe some of this is, is like a life lesson. He's on blast 24-7 for his failures. And that's the kind of thing that I can't imagine he wouldn't say, you know what, time to get serious, right? And that's what I hope for him. But my thing is, we don't need to stick around and wait for that. Like you said, Joel Embiid, who knows how many years we have left of him because he's a big man who's so injury prone. So I, I think that it's a little overstated about how much Ben Simmons' trade value has diminished because a lot of it's psychological and, and, and I think a good coach can get that out of him. As far as like other moves we could do, as it is right now, between Tobias Harris, Ben Simmons, and Joel Embiid, that's a combined $100.6 million of the projected $112 million salary cap. So we are very limited on what moves we can make and getting Ben's contract out of there will open up a lot of space. Now, to answer your question about picks, I think if Sixers fans have issued with the Thunder throwing a ton of picks at our team, I, I don't agree with that because if we have a lot of assets, it's not like we're waiting to draft that next guy. We would use those picks with other assets, maybe a Tyrese Maxey or if Shake Milton has value, Shake Milton. I, I don't know what his value is right now, but maybe something like that or some type of assets, whoever. We could potentially use that treasure trove of picks to a team that's maybe trying to clean up shop. Maybe the Wizards would want all those picks and give us Bradley Beal. That's extreme wishful thinking, but that kind of thing. Maybe the Bulls will give us Zach Levine for that or the Trailblazers for McCollum and Covington. I don't know. 
but I don't but, think. But, but what you're saying is like a multi-part trade that I'm not entirely sure is feasible because let's say you excise Ben Simmons for picks, you still need that salary back in some way to move for the guys you're talking about. I, I you know, what's interesting is those type of guys, Bradley Beal type players, were totally the sort of piece that I, I think everyone expected that Maury was holding on hope to use Simmons to get. Right. Like we know for a fact that he tried to trade Ben Simmons or James Harden, for instance. And I'm not sure even in a straight up trade if that could even work at this point, given what we've seen in the playoffs. So what you're kind of advocating for is maybe trade him, get some assets back and then build towards something and trade those. But that doesn't necessarily just happen sort of within one season. And now you're asking Joel Embiid after carrying this team on his back this season to come back to maybe a, a stripped down roster or the bunch of picks. Is that feasible even? Well, there's two ways of looking at it. Like, you're right. That is kind of a stretch in some ways. But at the end of the day, assets are assets. And Daryl Morey, he is the person who really brought in that analytics wave, you know, of getting your assets and moving those assets. If there is a GM or president, whatever you want to call him, who would be capable of pulling something off, I would like to think it's him. So gun to your head, is Ben Simmons a 76er on day one of the regular season in October? I don't think so. Wow. Damn. With Glenn River saying what he did, with Joel Embiid saying what he did, with the fans as enraged as they are. And, and also, just to clarify for those who might not know, can you just quickly say what exactly those guys said? So after the Game 7 loss... In the post-game press conference, Glenn Rivers was asked if he thought Ben Simmons could be a championship point guard, to which he replied, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, which is surprising from Glenn because he's not known for throwing people under the bus. And previously, he had really supported Ben. So I guess it was just frustration of this guy going out there and missing a million free throws. I don't know. As for Joel, he was asked by reporters, what was the turning point in the game? And he basically described the play where Ben gave up a wide open dunk and Matisse got the ball and only made one of two free throws, which basically is putting it all on Ben there. Yeah, and you could see if you listen to that press conference, he was thinking about whether he should say it or not. He almost catches himself and then just kind of says, fuck it and says it anyway. So it wasn't exactly a ringing endorsement of Ben Simmons. If Ben Simmons is on the roster when the season starts, I I think it would really hurt team morale because when you see a guy let you down like he did, that kills morale on a team. It's actually hard to imagine a worse overall loss than what the Sixers experienced, except that I think Utah might actually be candidates for that because like the Sixers, they were the number one seed. But unlike the Sixers, they were facing a team without its best player. Kawhi Leonard goes down, and what do the Jazz do? They proceed to lose two games in a row to a Kawhi-less Clipper team. And that last game, game six, culminated in the Jazz blowing a 25-point lead. Abi, as you were watching that game and your season slip away, what was going through your mind? I thought the worst thing that could ever happen to the Jazz was when Jamal Murray torched us last year and we blew a 3-1 lead. But it wasn't. It was that 25-point lead. I was in utter disbelief. I actually could not believe what I was seeing. I was literally running around my living room screaming like a crazy person because I just <laughs> I couldn't fathom what was happening. It was like the most absurd thing. I can't believe that. We were up by 25 points in an elimination game. And then it's like everyone forgot how to play basketball. Like, Quinton forgot how to coach. It didn't make any sense. And we just... It's crazy. 
I, I seriously can't believe that happened. If you were to tell me that we were going to lose two games in a row without um uh, Kawhi Leonard, and one of those games were going to be up by 25 points, and you told me that, I would laugh because I would think that there was no way that would happen. There would probably be like maybe like a 0.0001% chance of that, like of that actually happening. And it happened. So many things went wrong. So many things. For those of you who may not know, Abi is actually my brother and we live in the same house. So I was bearing witness to my brother losing his goddamn mind. And it was one of the most, <laughs> and it, for me at least as a spectator on the outside, it was absolutely beautiful to watch him flame out. Uh, I know it sounds mean to say, but I was having the time of my life watching him lose his mind. Dude, like, I, I seriously can't believe. It's just crazy to me. And so many culprits, though. So many. Why don't we start then with literally the biggest culprit on the team in terms of size, but also in terms of the blame he's getting. And that is the three-time Defensive Player of the Year, Rudy Gobert. What did you see from him, Abi, this series? Nothing. I didn't see anything from him this series. (laughs) 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 But to be more specific, I mean, Rudy Gobert has to be the worst multiple-time Defensive Player of the Year I've ever seen. It's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like it's like it was pitiful how bad he was on defense it was like absolutely atrocious he's supposed to be this guy that could like guard the entire paint and no one will be able to um go at him but there were time and time and time again where clipper players were going at this guy they were isolating him it's like every time like reggie jackson paul george terrence Mann, like whenever these guys like saw him it's like they were like licking their lips and salivating at the idea of like scoring him in the paint it's crazy absolutely crazy he couldn't stop them at all but don't even get me started on his poor perimeter defense that was some of the worst perimeter defense from him i've seen like ever everyone always like you know like i'm clowns on him when like i'm got like ankle broke by steph curry in 2017 but this was in my opinion much much worse because they did the same thing over and over and over again but i don't think it's like entirely all his fault because i also do think that quinn snyder put him in a position to fail and for him to not be as effective yeah and we'll get to quinn snyder in a second but i want to focus on gobert it's interesting he is very very good at the one thing that he does well which is protect the rim right i mean He's on a roster surrounded by below average defensive players outside of Royce O'Neal. And he's expected to sort of lift them all up. And he does it. One of the reasons that I think he's a deserving candidate for the kind of awards that he gets as a defensive player is because he is a guy who can sort of raise the floor of your defense. But I'm not sure that he changes the ceiling of your defense because he's so limited in what he can do and that he's only going to be really helping you in drop schemes. But the farther you advance in the playoffs, you're going to come across a team, either a stretch five or a team like the Clippers, that's unafraid to play basically wings as their centers because they have no fear of Rudy Gobert punishing them on the other end. There's a lot of big men out there who struggle chasing around guys at the three-point line. Even really good defensive players like, say, Joel Embiid. He's a guy who can struggle when he's playing a stretch five. But the difference is, if you're going to put a tiny guy on Embiid or even sort of lesser players like a Nurkic or a Vucevic or even someone like Robin Lopez, he can hook shot over a guy like that, right? Like if you put a little guard on him, Rudy Gobert's inability to punish someone like that lets them get away with 
putting a little guy as a center effectively. And then Gobert has nowhere to be on defense, which then takes him away from the rim and makes it impossible for him to come help without leaving a wide open three-point shot somewhere. I just want to say Ben Simmons should have been the defensive player of the year. Sorry, I'll be, but... No, no, no. Honestly, I completely agree with that. I hate Ben Simmons, and I will honestly like agree with you there 100%. <laughs> I agree with you 100%. And I'm a Jazz fan, and I'm still agreeing with you. So that has to count for something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting with what you said, AC, and what Obi was kind of alluding to. I mean, when the Clipper players saw Rudy Gobert in the paint, specifically Reggie Jackson, it's almost as if they wanted to challenge him and they were successful in all their challenges. I mean, there is a ridiculous stat with Rudy Gobert on shots that he's guarding in the paint. Clipper players scored 12 out of 15 of their field goals inside the paint against them. And that's completely unacceptable from a defensive player of the year. What's fascinating about that, Anushan, is that the first half of the series, it didn't play out like that at all because... If you remember, Paul George would basically only attack the rim when Gobert was off the floor. There was actually like a fear at going after Gobert. And then as the series progressed, maybe it was because Gobert was so often closing from the weak side and from the three-point line. But it seemed as if multiple Clippers, and, and honestly, Reddy Jackson more than anyone else epitomized this, had absolutely no fear of going into the body of Gobert, where you can look over the course of the last several seasons, including playoff seasons, Gobert has done a good job. But for whatever reason, they lost that fear. And when the only thing you're doing defensively is being a good shot blocker, and you, then you start losing the ability to alter shots. You know, you become really, really useless, frankly, uh, out there on the basketball court. Right. And again, like in the last two games, that they played Rudy Gobert totaled zero blocks in those games and you mentioned something very interesting AC you talk about this idea of fear and with a lot of the top tier defensive players in the NBA I'm talking about a Giannis Antetokounmpo Kawhi Leonard Paul George even for that matter Ben Simmons AD all these guys a lot of players don't want to even attempt to challenge them right we see that all the time like I can't even think of a besides a player like Jokic really I've yet to see players consistently score against someone like Anthony Davis, but a lot of players don't even attempt to do that. But even though Rudy Gobert, statistically speaking, is a guy who can protect the rim and the num the numbers will prove that and, and advanced ends will prove that he is a good deterrent against players challenging him at the rim. They don't care about any of that. They look at him and they want to go at him. And Or at least they didn't at the end of the series. Right, exactly. And to me, at least... When I, when I see that, and I and I think of other ways that you can game plan against a Rudy Gobert, as we saw with what Ty Lue sort of employed with, you know, adding only more offense and only more floor spacing, and I guess also doing part with the weak game plan that Schneider employed, you're just setting up Rudy Gobert for, for failure. And I've been saying this for so many years that it's so easy to game plan against a Rudy Gobert in the playoffs when a team with the right personnel goes up against him. And it's not like you need some all-world stretch five either. Apparently, the likes of Terrence Mann is sufficient to completely <laughs> take him out of his game. <laughs> but again, I think the bigger story here, a lot of blame is going to go on to Rudy Gobert, but I think his limitations were fundamentally exposed by the chess match that Ty Lue just absolutely checkmated Quinn Snyder in, in this series. Because this entire series shifted when Ty Lue committed to playing small and he started matching Gobert's minutes with either Marcus Morris 
or even a flat out, you know, just perimeter player who's not even like nominally a center. And then he'd only play Zubak basically when Favors was in the game. That made Gobert stand at the three-point line, chasing around some little guy. Or if they played zone, he was kind of camped in the paint, but there was just too much shooting in those situations. Yeah, and then time and time again, because he's not the best perimeter defender, the Clippers were just abusing him and he couldn't do anything about it. And then you also have to factor in the completely like absurd like game plan that Snyder had in game six, where instead of like opting for a small ball lineup to match um, uh, the Clippers' small ball lineup, he wanted to keep Gobert in the game, but then they wanted to protect the paint so they wouldn't get easy dribble pen, and they were leaving the corners open. And at the beginning, it did work because the Clippers weren't hitting their shots, and then we were hitting ours. You know, everyone was was playing pretty well. Donovan was doing Donovan things. Clarkson was on, and everything was going pretty well. But then, you know, Terrence Mann, he started to really heat up, and he was making all of his shots from the corner. And then, you know, Gobert wasn't closing fast enough, and this happened time and time and time again and that 25 point lead started to slip to like 17 points and then 10 points and then it got so bad where at the end of the third quarter we're only up by three points and Snyder refused to change anything he refused to change the stupid game plan that literally made no sense so to clarify a little bit about what Ubi's talking about here so what Snyder tried to employ is what's known as appeal strategy so what would end up happening is Gobert would be sitting in a corner and usually when there's dribble pen that happens that's coming on his strong side, he would look to dip into the paint and then whoever's guarding the ball would go and close out into that corner that Gobert comes and helps off of. So he was employing the strategy against Terrence Mann who, I mean, lo and behold, like he had an amazing Mike Miller-esque type of game where he's just hitting three after three after three. And no one can stop him. And even going to the basket, he's absolutely unstoppable. I mean, you you can't really predict for something like that. And I, I get it. You know, you need to help off where you can. But the fact that this kept happening over and over and over again and Snyder not being able to adapt really shot them in the foot. And then they decided to play a 2-1-2, keeping Gobert back into that corner, trying to keep on zoning and forcing the Clipper players to make threes. Because like Ubi said in the first half, they were doing very well and their strategy was working. I mean, the Clippers could not buy a three-point shot for their lives. But, you know, as the course of the game and the flow of the game changed, so did the score. The problem with that strategy, whether it's a zone strategy or whether it's peeling strategy, is the Clippers are an extraordinary three-point shooting team. And yes, Terrence Mann probably wasn't really on the scouting report, not someone to consider a big threat, although there were certainly signs at points even in the Mavs series. But when the guys hit his fourth three, now he's hit his fifth three. Like, at what point is the strategy going to adapt accordingly? But I think, though, personally, too much focus on what Gobert is doing here and not nearly enough focus on the fact that the Jazz players were getting blown by. And Gobert himself is a bit defensive and he's saying, I have to come into the paint when, you know, someone's getting by, by my guy and, uh, you know, someone has to contest the rim. Otherwise, it's a layup. I think he's actually right to some degree there. He had moments where he himself struggled on the perimeter defense, but I think the far bigger problem with this team is that they have a lot of bad defenders as an overall team, right? This team was basically carried by Gobert to this number two defensive ranking down the regular season, but like guys can't keep anyone in front of them. Their whole squad, basically outside of Royce O'Neal, there's no one I trust to keep their man in front of them. You know, I think there's a roster flow here about trying to build a team purely based upon offensive players and hoping that Gobert, basically who can play one kind of defense, can bail you out. 
They gave up a miserable 125 points per 100 possessions to the Clippers this series. I get it. The Clippers are a great offense, but those numbers are like 10 points per game better than the greatest offense of all time. That's the kind of ease at which the Clippers scored. Yeah, that is a very good point that you make. There's just so many times where it'll either be like Mitchell or Clarkson and they'll let their guy get past them and then they'll look back thinking that Gobert will be able to stop them. But then... Exactly, Abby. Exactly. Exactly my point. They, they don't even like make that effort to chase over the screen and come back, right? They kind of like let the guy go by and they're so used to Gobert just being there. And then when he's not, it's like a layup unless he runs in from the three-point line. But yeah, like it's just crazy because then if he does collapse into the paint after and then it gives an open look from three. So there's really not much he can do. But even so, I still don't think that excuses how bad he was in the paint, considering that that's supposed to be his area of expertise and guys are attacking him left, right and center. Yeah, I mean, it's very tough when you have a guy that you're supposed to rely on to get you those kind of stops. And I mean, in the past, we'll give credit to him. He's been a guy who he has the moniker of being the stifle tower. Like he is a very good interior defender. So if he's not able to provide that for you at the very least, he's not really doing all that much else. I mean, yes, he's a good screen setter. He sets about a hundred screens and usually they're pretty effective for a game. Sure. And he's a good role man too. Of course we know this, but there's just so many limitations that Gobert has. And that in of itself just makes the game much harder for everyone else because what the Clippers are doing is they're constantly employing switches and usually in many circumstances, a team like AC kind of alluded to before they can take advantage of that when their big man is able to score consistently in the paint. But since Gobert lacks such fundamental offense for a big man, it's very difficult for the Jazz to formulate a very good offense, especially when the three-point shot isn't falling or they're having some sort of struggle on offense. Yeah, and if he could just develop like at least a hook like Robin Lopez could, then you wouldn't be able to just play small ball so recklessly considering that he'd be able to hit that shot consistently. But since Gobert's offense is pretty much just him catching lobs and rolling to the rim, there's really nothing else he can do aside from that. I mean, just think about it. We're, we're in a world right now where we're comparing Rudy Gobert's offense to someone like Robin Lopez. Like, that idea is just so <laughs> unfathomable. Like, that shouldn't be something that we, we're thinking about because Robin Lopez is not the kind of guy that you want your offense compared to. But at least that guy at least has a hook shot, and he can at least... Absolutely. I guess, I guess, I guess punish smaller defenders. I shouldn't say punish because Robin Lopez, but he can still do that. What can Gobert do if he can't roll and he can't catch lobs? I completely agree. And I think this is the real problem with Rudy Gobert on the Jets. Because on the one hand, they have supposedly they've built the roster toward all these offensive players, right? But those offensive players aren't really isolation offensive players. Yes, obviously Donovan can do that to some degree. And some guys have a little bit of ability to do that as well, like Bogdanovich, but not enough. So they aren't great switch hunters and Gobert can't punish switches. So this team needs basically a system like the system that Quinn Snyder runs to generate offense. Well, what have we seen year after year? Apart from teams that have Hall of Fame players running system-based offenses like say the Warriors or the Spurs of old, system-based offenses die when you face switching teams with like-sized players. Someone has to punish a switch somewhere. And usually it's your center that's doing that a little bit and Gobert can't do it. And there's really no one else in the roster I see who can consistently do that. Can Mitchell do that a little bit? Sure, but enough to win a championship? I don't know. And so that it puts a ceiling on this team. 
Also, we mentioned that his squad is second round and out every year. The Jazz, once again, have fallen short in the second round as well. So we've talked a lot about Rudy Gobert, who is, as AC would argue, is one of the better players, if not the best player on the Jazz. But for us three, I know that we all consider Donovan Mitchell to be that guy. So, Abi, I just wanted to ask you, what did you see out of Donovan this series? Were you impressed? Were you not impressed? What is your thoughts? Aside from his defensive issues, I was really impressed with him. He was averaging over 30 points a game, and he was playing his heart out, especially on that ankle sprain. He was giving everything that he had. No one could stop him, but no matter how well he played, the team just let him down. Clarkson was very inconsistent. Joe Ingles, I don't know what happened to Joe Ingles, but he was nowhere to be seen. Bogdanovich was also kind of streaky. He was the only like reliable guy that was doing what he could. He had one bad game in Game 5, but he came back towards the fourth quarter, but he had no help all series. So I'm really happy with the way he played, and I'm sure he's going to make strides to get better next year, but I do have to ask the same question. If we run it back with the same team, then what then? I still don't know if we can get past the second round, even if Mitchell becomes a top 10 player, because we lost to a team that didn't have their best player. So I do have to ask the question, can we really run it back with the same squad? And let me paint a picture of you guys real quick. So Phoenix, Chris Paul's out with COVID protocols. Kawhi Leonard from the Clippers, he's out with his possible ACL. And then in the East, you know, Joel Embiid has a torn meniscus. And James Harden is out with a hamstring injury. And Kyrie Irving is out with another ankle injury. This was our best year to win. And we blew it. You know, we literally, we shot the bed so hard so i don't know what's gonna happen next year i honestly don't know what's gonna happen (laughs) if you had the choice if abby was the gm of the jazz are you going to try to i don't know get rid of rudy gobert would you rethink how your team's structured what are you thinking it's a tough call to make because although Rudy Gobert does do those things well, like his interior defense, like, well, he's only really good in the regular season. And another thing that I want to talk about is his awful contract. You know, he's getting 200 plus million for the next five years. So who are we really going to trade him for? I don't know what we're going to do with him. And as AC also alluded to, because we have a bunch of below average defensive players, and also if we do trade Gobert, then what happens next? Our defense is going to plummet. I honestly don't know what the right call is. We might need a coaching change and maybe we need to figure out a way to use Gobert in a way that doesn't kill us. I just don't think Snyder's adjustments were good enough and he refused to make any kind of change that actually changed the flow of the game. So I don't know. I honestly don't know. What I love about playoff basketball is that everything about a team is laid bare. The regular season is an incredibly deceiving thing where you don't have time to prepare for teams. Under the crucible of the playoffs, the real cream rises to to the top and everything else is exposed. This team, this roster is flawed. If they couldn't win in a year, I mean, you mentioned all the guys injured. Let's not forget that LeBron's out. I mean, he played, but he was banged up. AD is out. Jamal Murray's out. There's like an endless amount of guys who were out of the way. And this goes to the Sixers and the Jazz. This could have been your golden opportunity where everything was just cleared. But the Jazz are in a real damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Abi mentioned Rudy Gobert's contract. When you say 200 million, it sounds like a lot. But in 2024-25, this guy's going to have a base salary of 43 million 
$827,000. And then the next year, 25, 26, he's going to have a $46 million player option. So you know, at some point you could say, okay, let's trade him, but who's going to want him? Because all of his flaws are exposed for the whole world. Is he's the same problem the Sixers have with Ben Simmons. But also, if you, even if you are able to trade him, like say you trade him for a couple bunch of players, the team is so bad defensively that I don't think without Gobert, they can do anything either. Like if they become some pure offense-based team, but with the kind of personnel they have, I, I'm not really sure what the ceiling of that team is. And so then you're like, all right, well, maybe they should add, get a third player to sort of join in, like another, maybe like someone to be a reliable second option next to Donovan Mitchell, because we can't count on Mike Conley. Back-to-back years now, he's been banged up. Bogdanovich, he's not quite there. But what are you using to get that? What's the asset that the Jazz have to get that player? I, I think there's a team that's going to be sort of stuck in the area they are and in a position where they have to keep running everything back and hope that everything just breaks right for them. But it kind of did this year. I mean, everything did break right for them and they still couldn't get it done. So I don't know. I see. When you were saying Gobert's numbers, it sounded like when you drag your fingernails on a chalkboard, like... I was like, oh, man, that's so much money for that guy. God. How do you think I feel? It's my team. (laughs) And and I I do have to do a little mea culpa here because all season long, I believed in this jazz team for some stupid reason, even though it goes against everything I believe about in terms of star performance. I believe in their system. I believe in their three-point shooting all year long. Anu, Eric, Oswe. Even Ubi, to some degree, kind of <laughs> walked me off of this idea that the Jazz had a real chance to win it all. And and if they couldn't beat this Clippers team without Kawhi Leonard, they had no shot of winning a championship realistically. So I'm, I'm wrong. You guys were right. It's okay. Oswe Dramas was wrong about the Sixers winning it all, right? So. <laughs> I mean, I've said it all year. And hey, there are contenders and then there are pretenders. And Ubi, I'm very sorry to say the Jazz are pretenders. <sighs> Man, it's a a hard knock life. That's all I have to say. (laughs) It's tough. (laughs) It's a hard knock life. (laughs) So from two teams that have shown that they are not ready for the big time, we do have a team that got over that hump and really showed out in the face of adversity, and that's the Milwaukee Bucks. And I know for a lot of us, it's kind of surprising because, I mean, me personally, I didn't think at all that they had a chance against the Brooklyn Nets and I pegged the Nets as a favorite now granted they were dealing with some injuries and you know you can say if and only if this happened if that happened but I mean hey the Bucks came through and they won in a very close game seven that went to an overtime so guys what do we think Giannis was the Greek freak he's no longer Oikos he's no longer Greek yogurt. <laughs> yeah I mean look I look at how he came to play this year, and this is exactly what I love to see. I've never thought that Giannis was somebody who wasn't a worker. Like He's somebody who really wants it, and, and a lot of the failures in the past, I think it really got to him. When the Bucks needed him, what did he do? He came out and balled out. He was 31.9 points per game, 12.9 rebounds per game. He had, he had 40 points, 13 rebounds, and 5 assists in the pivotal game. And I mean, look, we always said that if there was a team that could beat the Nets in the playoffs, it was the Bucks. Our only concern was that Bud would get in their way and this Bucks team would choke their opportunity. And there were times in this series that I thought, oh my God, the game that Kevin Durant dropped 49, I thought the Bucks could have still won Which that one, game. Which one, honestly? This fool dropped 49 multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, 
I thought the Bucks could have definitely won game five. That was theirs for the taking. And I thought, you know, maybe this Bud Bucks team can't go all the way. They're just destined to flutter out. But now I look at them and I think, you know, these guys could very well win a championship. And you know what? I'm all for it. You know, I love the story of Giannis finally getting over that hump. This is what you see a lot of guys in their career. They struggle, they struggle, and finally they break through. And, you know, it'd be great to see former Sixer Drew Holiday getting a ring. It's interesting you bring up Game 5, Oswee, and, and the way the Bucks look. Because long ago, before the collapses of the Sixers and the Jazz, there was a Bucks collapse in that Game 5. What, what seemed then a, a giant blown lead of 15 points, which in retrospect looks like nothing after your two teams went <laughs> and blew much bigger lead. You guys remember that game? That's the game in which Kevin Durant not only played out of his mind, but the Bucks did all the things we laugh about the Bucks about, right? Giannis didn't play enough minutes. Giannis went to a post fadeaway for no reason at all when he had James Harden in single coverage against him. Just questionable substitution decisions, questionable play calling, Giannis taking too many threes in early shot clock situations. If anyone watched that game, they would come with thinking, well, this is going to end. Maybe the Bucs this week out of game six, but for sure in game seven, it'll be over. The Nets will take care of business. What happened? Game six comes, Giannis takes zero three-pointers in that game. And the Bucs pretty convincingly win that. Game seven, a lot of things go against their way. Drew Holiday is ice cold throughout this game. Kevin Durant is having yet another spectacular performance. And yet, the Bucs stay in it. They stay focused. And down the stretch, when it really comes down to when it gets in that overtime, when you know they're, they're ahead... And by the way, even to get to that overtime, Drew Holiday comes alive, which shows his value on this team. They didn't have a guy like this before. They go into that overtime, all the pressure's on because Kevin Durant has made this crazy shot. It seems that the Nets have all the momentum, although no one can score for the first two minutes. And then Giannis makes play, makes some big rebounds because Bruce Brown had been killing him on the glass. He makes some big boards. Chris Milton makes some good plays. And then once again, the critical play comes down to Giannis in the post. This time, though, he goes to the hook shot, not a fadeaway, and he makes it. To me, that shows the growth of a player who learned from his failure and within the same series came back better. So lots of props to the Bucks as a team and to Giannis in particular. Amen to that. Yeah, you see, you make a really good point talking a bit about Giannis' growth in this series because, like you said, at first he was sort of settling. The defense was basically giving him all these threes and he just opted to keep shooting them. And I thought that, you know, he's just playing into the defense's hands and not really taking the game into his own hands and, you know, really showing what he could do and i also thought that we really saw the growth of him during this series from being a guy who was struggling a little bit at first and now he's really taking the game and taking over the game and i also thought that coach bud really started to make some good adjustments i mean let's look at it for what it is he has a superstar player and he's finally giving him adequate amounts of minutes and he also has a bunch of guys on the roster who are pretty good themselves in chris middleton and drew holiday so look what happens when he actually decides to play them and and give them a good run and I-, I thought that all the role players played fantastic in that game seven I thought that like you said Drew Holiday had a great bounce back Chris Middleton stayed super consistent throughout this whole series like being that guy to give the ball to as a tough shot maker I mean he sort of molded himself into this guy now that you can give the ball to and be like hey I need you to get me a bucket and that's what you want out of a second option and I thought that Lopez and this is a guy that we were like kind of nitpicking especially me I was definitely down on Lopez throughout the series but he actually showed out and proved to be a very strong rim protector and he did a great job playing in that overtime blocking Kevin Durant of all people 
So I thought that Lopez was fantastic. And when all these cogs and pieces are working together, I think that the Bucks had the potential to be a very dangerous team and potentially even win a championship because our whole knock on them was because Bud couldn't use them correctly and a guy like Giannis would get in his own head, right? But if those things aren't happening and they stick to their their game plan and everyone's playing with a clear mind, I do think that the Bucks have a lot of potential to be NBA champions and the door is open for them right now. Yeah, just to add on that, like, I was very impressed with the way Chris Middleton was playing. I've also, like, just loved the way that he was able to close games out, but, like, the way he did. And I was a little bit scared when DiVincenzo went out in the previous round, and I thought that they were going to struggle without his three-point shooting and his um uh, defense. But the Bucks did really well, and I was also really impressed with P.J. Tucker. He played really good defense on KD. You know, I mean, I think they did miss DiVincenzo because it's not a deep team to begin with. They sold their depth to get Drew Holiday. And just judging from how the last two series have gone, it was a good trade overall. But I think missing DiVincenzo kind of threw the whole rotation out of whack. It forced them to always play sort of a shaky player like a like a Pat Connaughton or to play Brooke Lopez, even when, you know, he's getting exploited at times on defense. So they suffered for it, but they persevered. One of the things that I, I think Coach Bud came to realize after game five is I just have to play my guys a lot of minutes, my best guys. I'm going to go six, maybe seven to eight guys at, at most in my roster and live and die with that, which is what playoff basketball really is. We've been waiting for three years for this guy to do that, and he finally did. Anu, I, I love your point about using Chris Middleton more as sort of the initiator i think that's something we've been calling for for a while and to bud's credit this year he slowly adapted to that more and more i still thought earlier in this series Giannis wasn't used as a screen setter nearly enough they still tried to play Giannis like he was lebron a little bit too much that's not his game he's a finisher and when he set picks and rolled to the hoop he's at his best earlier in the series drew holiday chris middleton weren't punishing the coverage the Nets were doing in those situations nearly enough, not even close. Like Blake Griffin would just drop into the paint and basically shade toward Giannis on the roll and Drew Holiday would not take the open three or attack Blake Griffin who's kind of in bad position to stop a drive. He would just settle for sort of a mid-range jumper that missed. That changed as the series progressed and Middleton in particular was outstanding in those situations in game six and did just enough in game seven and, and Drew Holiday found his footing towards the end of game seven. So that action, which we've been calling for for so many years, started to work when one, they ran it more frequently and two, their players actually performed those guards, those wings who were playing with Giannis. I think the biggest takeaway that the Bucks have from this series is Chris Middleton coming alive at the right time. And moving forward, I think if he's your number two guy with Giannis, good luck to anybody because these guys are getting hot at the right time. They're playing big at the right time. And I just don't know who can stop them at this point. And there's a thing in playoff history where when you overcome whatever that playoff demon is and teams sort of get this collective confidence, it, it kind of builds upon itself. And now that the team realizes, oh, wait, we can come back from a 3-2 series. We can win a game seven on a road. We can survive a 49-point outburst from Kevin Durant. And we can win against a team that even while injured was considered more talented. And now we know our roles. We know that Middleton close. We know where Giannis can be used. It's kind of all setting up there for a, a real run where the team is just more confident going forward. 
AC, you make a great point. Having that kind of confidence, it can really bode well for not only this playoff run, but let's say in some facet, if they didn't win this year, it's not like they didn't learn anything, right? Because for years, they've been walled off. They haven't been able to overcome those demons. So it's only positive momentum to go from here. And you can't say that about a lot of teams that will make it far into the playoffs itself and then happen to lose. Because I think now, especially if Coach Bud is able to utilize these guys correctly, Correctly, they're a tough team to stop. They've always been title favorites or at least contenders, right? But now this is the best chance they have at winning a championship. A lot of their strongest competitors are out. I mean, yes, they're up against a very talented and young Hawks team, but this should be the year that they can get to the finals. I mean, honestly speaking, of course, we said that about the Sixers playing against the Hawks, but I mean, realistically, the Bucks should be the favorites going into the series. And even from the West side, like you have the Suns, you have the Clippers, and whichever team comes out, it's always going to be a dogfight. But at the end of the day, it's a lot of guys who are not very experienced outside of Kawhi Leonard in winning. So it's going to be very interesting to see how the rest of the playoffs shape out from here. Well, I will say this. The one thing I disagree with on Sean is that had they lost, they could have taken some lessons and it would all have been kumbaya in Milwaukee. I personally think that it would have been a level 10 disaster had they lost this series, given that everyone understands that it's like the road is wide open for them to win right now this year. If they failed again, I think it would have had, at minimum, Coach Bud would have been fired. I could have seen even a, a potential massive roster shakeup if, if that was something possible to be done. In that way, you could make an argument that Game 7 of the Nets Bucks series was maybe the most important game in recent memory in terms of how it's going to like shape legacies and franchises because if Giannis loses that game he's perceived fundamentally different than he is right now after winning that series despite overall playing pretty well right and same for the Bucks as a franchise so kudos to them for getting it done to take your point further it's not just that it's also the idea that this guy Giannis when other people are teaming up he decides to be loyal to his team to take that supermax and to try to run it back with the same guys and then adding Drew Holiday so it's more of an organic build than say a Nets build where these guys I saw somewhere people were joking. It's like an AAU team where on a weekend, all of a sudden you get a guy from New York and Maryland and wherever else. And, you know, they're just coming together and not playing most of the regular season. It meant a lot for the NBA's future from that sense as well, from like a how a, a roster is constructed and how the regular season is viewed. Yeah, I would just want to, to clarify my, my point being that like what I meant, like, yes, I think they would have got a lot of positive lessons to learn once after this victory, right? Because this is the victory that they needed winning this game seven, right? Obviously, from this point on, like the door is kind of wide open. Like they can really go anywhere from here. But I'm saying that like, even if they weren't to win a championship right now, I do think they got over that sort of hump that they needed to get over, which is, you know, beating a team that conceivably they didn't really didn't seem like they had a lot of chances of winning against because of the limitations placed by them by Coach Bud or whatever game plan that they had and Giannis's own mental blocks. Two other things I want to note about the series. I don't recall any playoff series in NBA history before where chanting the count on a free throws became a thing but i found it highly entertaining throughout <laughs> and, and really enjoyed it and 
You know, I'm, I'm actually glad they didn't call him for the 10 second violations because the NBA refs already called too many things. But I just found the whole thing to be really entertaining. So, you know, as a Knicks guy, I, I give Nets fans a lot of shit. But hey, that was pretty cool. <laughs> well, AC, that, that being said, I didn't like how the NBA stopped the Nets arena from showing the clock on the Jumbotron. That's very uncool, very no fun league type of yeah, decision. Yeah, agreed. But, but it almost made the chant even cooler because you could see like people would start the one at different points. Some people don't know the rules, so they'll just like start counting when the referee has the ball. And then, you know, so that I, I, it led to some weird side entertainment. The other point I wanted to make in terms of what this means for the league, also you, you talked about the value of having a sort of a team built more organically and keeping its core together, as opposed to what the Nets did. I think it's important for the league. But there's two other parts of it, too, that are important about Milwaukee. One is that it's a small market. It matters that a small market can succeed, that someone who stays in a small market can be rewarded with a chance to win. Them losing to another super team in a big market would be, I think, overall a really bad look for the league. The other thing is, it also was very important that a team won it by defense. Because if you look at this playoffs, all the good defensive teams have been basically knocked off one by one. The Lakers led the league in defense and had a pretty mediocre offense. They obviously lost, maybe due to injury or whatever. The Knicks got pretty much wiped by an offensive team. The the Bucks, while being kind of good on both ends, they really won this series with their defense. They really limited a Nets offense that was so explosive in some games you know there was the famous game they won 86 83 you know you would never think you could beat the Nets scoring 86 points the fact they did that i think is also a good sign that defense matters too team defense matters concepts matter all that stuff still matters in in professional basketball i'm just happy that the Nets lost and james Harden isn't gonna get a free ring that's amen to that (laughs) more than enough to make me happy (laughs) The the last uh, title in the New York area is still the 73 New York Knicks, baby. (laughs) Damn. How would you say that? That's a goddamn long time. Hey, go New York. Go Um, New York. Go. And by the way, the Go New York chant is so much cooler than the Brooklyn chant. Agreed. Brooklyn, the Brooklyn chant is so depressing. Brooklyn. <laughs> it's very reminiscent of the Warriors, exactly. so no wonder Katie went there. <laughs> so, of course, we know that the Bucks are a tremendous defensive team. But even with all that in consideration, there was one man who rose above and beyond, and that's Kevin Durant. As you guys know, we've talked on a previous podcast about who the best player in the league was. And, you know, a lot of us were kind of hesitant to say definitively that it was Kevin Durant. And I know Eric especially was a guy who was not really so high on giving Kevin Durant that sort of moniker. But, I mean, if you guys think about it, after we saw the series against such a good defensive team where this guy, is, it looks like he's putting up 45 plus games in his sleep i mean we have to kind of step back and look at what kevin durant did and kind of marvel at it honestly because even though they didn't win that series kevin durant for sure far and away maybe not far and away but you could make the argument that he was the best player in that series i mean man what a series from kevin durant that that was that was incredible i mean when i saw how kevin durant performed in that series all I can think is, you know what? Good for him. Because the last time he was in the playoffs, the man tore his Achilles tendon. Now, when 
our co-host Runga tore his Achilles, our friend group stopped playing basketball for over a year because we were so shell-shocked by it. Now imagine to actually have that injury, the worst sports injury, to come back and to do what he did, to play the entire game, not to take a single minute of rest and just cook the other team on all three levels. I mean, I tip my Sixers hat to you, Kevin Durant, because that was a masterclass. When we speak about Kevin Durant, there's an acknowledgement, there always has been, that he's a top 10 all-time talent. The problem with trying to evaluate Kevin Durant as a basketball player in Golden State was that their margin for error for that team is just too big. right? Because if you look through NBA history, all the great teams needed their best player to be great for them to win. If they played badly, they would lose. If Jordan played badly on a given night, the Bulls would lose. Kobe played badly on a given night, the Lakers would lose. You can go on and on like that. The Warriors had too much of a talent gap over the rest of the league. They had two MVP caliber players and two other Hall of Famers next to them, plus amazing supporting cast. So it just felt like whatever Kevin Durant did, it was easy to just kind of dismiss it because of course he's scoring because he doesn't have the burden that some of the other stars around the league at. That's why even when he won two finals in a row against LeBron, I didn't really think that meant that much because LeBron was still playing really well in the lead up to those finals and LeBron played well in those finals as well with way more of a burden in terms of playmaking, scoring, everything. And that's why I just never liked Kevin Durant going to a team like the Warriors because it robs us of the opportunity to see just how far he can carry a team on his back. Well, this series with Kyrie Irving's injury and James Harden effectively playing on one leg showed us that Kevin Durant is that guy. They can put a franchise on his back and dominate. And so far, Anu and Asu, you've talked about his scoring proficiency. To me, that wasn't even nearly the most impressive thing. This guy was the best defensive player on this Nets team, which... Obviously, they don't have that many great defensive players, but he anchored them in so many ways. There's so many times where he made a critical switch onto Giannis or onto Drew or onto Middleton and basically snuffed the play out. His weak side help was amazing. And how about his play as a passer? If, they, if any kind of double came from anywhere, he made the right reads. He made some fantastic shuffle passes, some nice passes sort of across the court as well. So one from the three-point line into the paint. He read the defense right. He played elite defense. He obviously is the best scorer on the planet and has been for a long time. I think it's fair to say that at least at this moment, he is the best player in the world. You know, I've always said it, and you can go back and pass podcasts. I've always found Kevin Durant to be such an anomaly of a player because I, I can't fathom a seven-footer being able to do the kind of things that he's able to do on a basketball court. And not only from an offensive perspective, like AC, you said, he was an absolute savant on defense. And it, it's so easy to say, like, oh, well, you know, Kevin Durant has all the tools to be a great defender, blah, 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 so on and so forth. But rather than just having the tools, he's putting in the effort. He's He knows when to make a switch. He knows when to come weak side for help. He knows when to trap, knows when to double. It, it's almost like this guy lives and breeds basketball at this point. And I've never been a Kevin Durant fan, but I can appreciate good basketball and a great basketball mind when I see it. And that is Kevin Durant. So I've got to give him kudos. And you know what? Like, I think it was for me when we had that conversation about Kevin Durant being the best player in the world. I was very much so on board with that. But again, I think I was a bit persuaded that maybe someone else might be able to take that mantle from him. But now I'm entirely convinced that Kevin Durant right now is the best player in basketball.
there's just no one else in the league that can play the game like he can. And, you know, he's shown that he can be an amazing two-way player. Like, this guy almost had, like, a 50-point triple-double in Game 5. That's crazy. And he was everywhere on the court, offensively and defensively. And he didn't even get a minute of rest, like us we said. You know, like, I just feel like if, like, um the Nets were, like, a little bit better, like, defensively, then perhaps Nets could have won. But I'm glad they didn't, just because I could not bear to see James Harden win a ring <laughs> and take the easy way out. But I'm glad. The stunning thing about his defense is I can't recall any time where someone got better at defense as they progressed into their 30s, much less coming off an Achilles injury, which is really the antithesis of playing good defense, right? Because it requires you to make all these cuts and sudden change the direction. And that's exactly the kind of thing that could make an Achilles vulnerable. So the fact that he did that all with the scoring burden he had, because there were moments in Golden State where he played good defense. But again, like every stat shows that Steph was far more important to their overall flow of their offense and their team. So many people all over the place, so many threats. Here was all on KD. The entire attention of the defense was on him. And what's interesting is, you know, we praised Giannis a lot for how he played, but Giannis didn't take up the challenge of guarding people one-on-one in this series. Even after saying he would in Game 5, he basically skirted that responsibility in Game 6 and Game 7. Left it to P.J. Tucker, left it to Drew Hodge, left it to Middleton to guard KD. KD guarded Giannis when he could. He guarded Drew when he could. You know, Middleton when he could. I, I just didn't think he had this in his bag. I mean, he played like one of those all-time wing players who could do this on both ends. Like the Michaels, the LeBrons. There's very few who have done this in NBA. The Kobe's, you know, who had that kind of impact in NBA history as a two-way player in a playoff series. Yeah, you see, I mean, it's it's just incredible because no one expected Kevin Durant to be this kind of player, especially on the defensive end and especially coming off injury. It's just insane, honestly. One last thing on Durant. I know you mentioned how crazy it is that a guy who's seven foot can do the things that Kevin Durant do. This guy can pull up from 30 and cross you up and do all this stuff. Let's not forget that we spent the vast majority of this podcast talking about two other seven footers who can't even do basic things on offense in Ben Simmons <laughs> and Rudy Gobert. Like, that's a standard <laughs> expectation for what a seven footer should have as a skill set. And you look at Kevin Durant and think that Kevin Durant is like kind of the same height as them and can do all these things. It's actually insane. Yeah, the dude is one of a kind. And with that, I think that this is a great place to stop. I mean, guys, the playoffs have been absolutely incredible. And I mean, kudos to the Bucks for, you know, getting into the Eastern Conference Finals. Let's see what they do against the Hawks. And of course, playoff hopes, but also playoff failures. I'll be Usui, I'm very sorry for you guys. Onward and upward. Trust in Mori. All hope is lost. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe wherever you catch your podcast. And please catch us in the next one. We'll see you guys later.